Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. What do you think happens when you die? Is there an intermediate state? What does the Bible teach about the dead before resurrection? These questions are important for our study of the kingdom of God. If you go straight to heaven when you die, you're not going to care very much about what happens when Jesus comes back. You may find it marginally interesting, but it's not what's next for you. In this way, the doctrine of heaven at death eclipses Jesus' gospel of the kingdom. However, as it turns out, the Bible teaches that the dead are asleep until the resurrection of the last day. In this lecture, you'll learn the primary texts that support conditional immortality, and you'll see how this Hebrew notion compares to what other cultures and religions say about the afterlife. I think you may be surprised to see how it stacks up. This is Lecture 6 of the Kingdom of God class, originally taught at the Atlanta Bible College. To take this class for credit, please contact ABC so you can do the work necessary for a grade. Here now is Podcast 97, The Sleep of the Dead. Lecture six, the sleep of the dead. I want to cover just ever so quickly a little bit of vocabulary with you. There are two main words we use to talk about anthropology, the, what humans are made of. One, or especially the soul, one is natural immortality, and the other is conditional immortality. Natural immortality is the belief that the soul is immortal by nature. The soul is just immortal, they're, they're, or, or humans, or whatever part of the human is immortal by nature. That's natural immortality. Conditional immortality is that immortality depends on a condition, right? And so the, within Christianity, we say resurrection is the condition on which you gain immortality. So that's the idea that immortality is gained or based on a condition. And whether or not you are part of the resurrection of the just depends, it's conditioned on whether or not you believe in the gospel and have repented of your sins and have accepted God's forgiveness and have followed Jesus, right? So natural immortality is the idea that no matter what, you're still immortal. The essential you lives on. Conditional immortality is you can gain immortality, but it's not just innately part of who you are as a human being. Does that make sense as far as that distinction? So that's an important distinction to make. And what the Bible teaches is definitely the second one, the idea of conditional immortality or what I like to call the sleep of the dead, right? The dead people are asleep in their tombs awaiting the resurrection. Have you heard of the acronym RIP? Right? Rest in peace, right? That's the biblically accurate statement I've seen on any tombstone. Right, the most biblically accurate statement uh, you see on a tombstone. Sleep is the dominant metaphor the Bible uses to talk about death. It's not exactly true, it's not literal, that's why I say it's a metaphor, because you're not actually sleeping when you're dead, right? Sleeping people breathe, dead people don't, big difference. Sleeping people have skin, dead people, after a while, don't have skin anymore, right? I mean, you can see there's a difference, but it's the, meta, it's the dominant metaphor that the Bible uses to talk about death is sleep. I'm gonna just cruise through a few scriptures with you, and you just go ahead and write them down, and this is all under the category of the, the sleep of the dead or, or biblical evidence for the sleep of the dead. And these initial ones specifically refer to the kings. So the first one is 1 Kings 2.10, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And what you see is when the, in the book of Kings, when the king dies, that's how it talks about it. It doesn't say, and David went to a better place. And it doesn't say, and David went to be home with the Lord. No, it says David slept with his fathers. Now, David's fathers, by the time David dies, David's fathers are dead as well. 
So this is not talking about a kid cozying up with his dad when he wakes up in the middle of the night, right? This is talking about someone who's being laid to rest in the same tomb as his family. So then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And we see it throughout the book of Kings. So, for example, in 1 Kings 11.43, Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Or in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 20, 1 Kings 14.20, Jeroboam, it says, and in that time Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. So whether you're a good king or a bad king, the normal way that the author of Kings uses to talk about dying is to, to sleep with your father. And it's, it's kind of a weird expression, sleep with your fathers. But what it's talking about is being laid to rest in the ancestral tomb where your fathers, who were also kings, are laid to rest. By the way, to find... Scriptures related to this, you have to go to the parts of the Bible that are people are having a hard time, which is Job and Ecclesiastes and some of the Psalms, right? And, and sometimes people complain that conditionalists, which is people that believe uh, in the sleep of the dead, that we, we are camping out in obscure places of the Old Testament to build a doctrine. Look, it's not that we're trying to camp out there. It's just that when the wheels have fallen off and all seems to be lost, that's when people contemplate death. <laughs> so that's where you're going to find them talking about what they believe about death, which is why you get tons of stuff in Job. Uh, for example, in Job chapter 3, verse 11, Job 3:11, we read, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down, and been quiet, I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or why was I not a hidden, stillborn child as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster, the small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. So what Job is talking about here is that death is a time of rest, of sleep, and that it doesn't matter who you are, you go there. It doesn't matter if you're small or great. It doesn't matter if you had a lot of gold in your lifetime. It doesn't matter if you were a slave in your lifetime. Everybody goes to the same place. Later on, he talks about this subject a lot, actually. And I don't want to depress you too much, so we're, we're going to move on to Ecclesiastes. Vanity, <laughs> yeah. vanity, all is vanity. And Ecclesiastes is a very depressing book. It's, it's somebody that is searching for meaning under the sun and noticing that apart from God, hey, everything does kind of fall apart. And sometimes the race is not to the swift. And sometimes you, you think... If you, if you build something, it's going to be great. And then you say to yourself, yeah, but then I'm going to die and I'm going to be gone and some knucklehead's going to take this thing over and ruin it, right? And that's Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes 9.5 is the classic text, I would argue, the textus classicus for the sleep of the dead because it says the dead know nothing. And look, if you, if you don't know anything, either you're stupid or unconscious, right? And uh, I don't think you could say that he's just saying everyone immediately becomes really dumb when they die, right? So it says, Ecclesiastes 9.5, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy, have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Uh, I love verse 9. It's uh, one of my favorite marriage verses. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. It's like, look, enjoy your wife because that's like basically all you get, you know, in this pathetic, terrible life that we have. <laughs> right. Uh, so so the, the big one there was Ecclesiastes 9.5, but then uh, maybe even a bigger one 
is verse 10. And this is, this is just such a great one to use if you ever become a boss of some sort and you need to motivate employees, especially if they're Christian. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Uh, Sheol, of course, is the, just the Hebrew word for the grave. And translators are a little dodgy about that because they don't want to admit that fact. Uh, so they just translate it Sheol, which is not an English word. <laughs> but anytime you see a non-English word in your Bible, you should say, hmm, translator's job is to translate. They did not translate this word. Something's going on, right? And sometimes that's just because they don't know what to do. And other times there's a doctrinal controversy uh, going on. And I, that's what I would say is, is going on here with Sheol because they, they know it means the grave. <laughs> They know. But anyhow, the point is, whatever you do, do with all your might, because there's no work, no thought, no knowledge, no wisdom in the grave. Look, if you're in the grave, there's nothing happening. That's the point of Ecclesiastes 9.10. Very powerful verse. Very powerful. And I've got, I've got some more for you, too, as you, as you might suspect. Psalm 6.5 is another one. Uh, we'll start in verse 4. Psalm 6.4 says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. See, now these are the Psalms where things are going wrong and the person feels like they're going to die. So that's why they're talking about death, right? So here we, here we have one of these. Deliver my life. Save me, from your, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I love that prayer strategy. The psalmist is saying, Look, God, if you let me die, I can't praise you anymore. <laughs> it's kind of a, an interesting way of trying to get God to do what you want, right? Like, God, don't, don't, don't let me die. In Sheol, nobody can give you praise. Like, if I'm dead, like, you're not going to get anything out of me. So, save me. Yeah. You know what, David's heart, and he was a man after God's own heart. Yeah. He just, he just loved him so much. Yeah. He was probably thinking, you know, even though I will die and not know that, I will miss doing this. I will miss yeah. praising you. Yeah. That's probably a better perspective on it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't know. It, it happens. How about this one? Consider, this is Psalm 13, 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your chesed, right? Your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So this, this one says, look, God, save me, answer me, because otherwise I will sleep the sleep of death. That's the only place that actually uses that term that I'm aware of in the whole Bible. So that's, that's a cool verse, right? Psalm 13, 3 should be on the, on the memory list. There are lots more in the Psalms, but I don't want to belabor this. Let's just look at the one, uh, a couple in the New Testament ever so briefly. John eleven eleven is the Lazarus incident with Jesus Right? And after saying these things, he said to him, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And so here we have Jesus himself who is talking about death, but using the metaphor of sleep. Right? So Jesus did this himself. And I don't think Jesus was trying to be difficult here. He was just talking. And they, they just misunderstood it. So he clarified it. It wasn't a big deal. Acts 2.29 is another one. This is the day of Pentecost where Peter is preaching. And he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So, look, David... It has died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And then we look in verse 34, where it says, For David did not ascend into the heavens. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty strong statement there, isn't it? So David died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, but yet he did not ascend into the heavens. David is awaiting the resurrection in the grave. That's what the Bible teaches. Or... We find like in, when Stephen's about to die, in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, he says, Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 
and he recovered from his wounds and he preached the gospel. No, he died. <laughs> this is a scene where he's getting stoned, right? And uh, the, the, before the last rock hit him, he prayed for the, his persecutors and then he died. Death is like time travel. Do you guys know what I mean by that? Yeah, you, boom, next thing you know, Jesus is back. Yeah. How about Elijah and Moses? Mm. Elijah and Moses. What about Moses? Were they sold they, that Because when Jesus, you know... When... Oh, the transfiguration? Yeah, I think that was a vision. That was a vision that they saw. Yeah. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Uh, there's actually a good verse in Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews 11, which lists all these different famous people and then says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. Yeah, it's uh, Hebrews 11, 39. Yeah. So death is like time travel. You fall asleep in the car and uh, you wake up a couple hours later and it's like, boom, you're instantly there, right? That's what sleep is like time travel. Or um, uh, if you ever have surgery, you get knocked out, the next moment, you know, it's like an hour later and, you're, and you have no recollection of what happened there, right? There are two perspectives of death. From one point of view, think about David for a moment. From one point of view, David waited in the grave 3,000 years. Let's say Jesus came back and did the resurrection today, okay? David would have been in the grave for 3,000 years. That's a really long time. That's one perspective of thinking about death. From another perspective, though, from David's perspective, the moment he dies, he instantaneously goes from his last breath to the resurrection. So in the end, resurrection is the key to immortality. Resurrection is the way out. It's, it's the, the activator. From the perspective of the dead person, there's no awareness in the grave. So it's, you do perceive it as instantaneous, which is awesome if you think about it. Like, that's such a great way to do it. I think God knows what he's doing. <laughs> Dale 12, 2 is uh, such an important verse. These are just, uh, so we looked at death, right? So now let's look at resurrection. So I, I just want to cover one, two, three verses on this subject. Dale 12, 2 is the first one up. And it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Hmm, I guess that assumes they're asleep, doesn't it? Right? Let me say it again. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I think that's a metaphor. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you're actually going to glow. But some Christians have thought that you're, we are just going to be orbs of glowing light, which I don't think really fits with the rest of the Bible. This is another one that we've looked at several times already. Sometimes there's a little overlap here, but Jesus says, this is very similar to Daniel 12, 2. Jesus says, Many of those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Right? Or even, you can even think of like just John 3, 16, right? So that they would not perish but have eternal life. Right? So like those are the, the, the two options there, perish or eternal life. And the key here is resurrection. Yeah. Is that John 5? This is John 5, 28. Yeah, 528, uh, 29. That's a, it's, it's Jesus echoing Daniel 12 too. So you have Daniel 12 too. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. Jesus, uh, he's actually talking about himself here, if you, if you get the context, right? He's talking about the Son of Man. So he's talking about himself in the third person. And he's like, those who are in the tombs are going to hear his voice. I mean, he could have said my voice. So Jesus claims to be the resurrection activator, right? The one who actually says, wake up. I don't know if he's going to use those words, but. Uh, and then the last one, which is just such a great verse on this subject, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And the big point there is this, at his parousia, at his coming. That's 
the moment of resurrection, right? Resurrection doesn't happen when you die. It happens when Jesus returns. And that's when you have this big moment of resurrection. Now, in order to appreciate how unusual the biblical view of death and resurrection is, I want to look at what other ancient ideas are out there about the afterlife. Resurrection is the key to immortality. Okay, we already looked at that. Here's the Egyptian view of the afterlife. At death, the soul goes to the kingdom of the dead, where it must recite secret formulae from the book of the dead. Judgment involves the demon Amit, devouring an unworthy soul, whereas the good would live on in the fields of Yalu and accompany the sun on its daily ride. Only those who could secure embalming in a sarcophagus had a way into the afterlife. So basically rich people. Here's another one. Greek afterlife. You don't have to write all these down. I just want to show them to you. On death, Hermes takes the dead soul to the shores of the river Styx in the realm of the god Hades. Charon, the ferryman, brings the deceased across the river. Based on how someone lived, he or she would go to Elysium, a paradise for the good and heroic. The asphodel fields for people who did as much bad as good, or the punishing fields for the mediocre bad or Tartarus, a place of torment by hot lava or the rack. So this is the Greek, after these are all from Wikipedia, just afterlife article. You know, it's just a general little summary. Norse afterlife. The soul stays in the body until released through decay or cremation. It goes to one of four places, Valhalla, where warriors who die in battle join Odin in Asgard, Folkvanger, I don't know how to pronounce these things, I'm just making it up, a great meadow where Freja reigns, Hell, a place where those who are neither good nor bad go to reunite with loved ones, or Nifhel, or Niflhel, punishment for those who break oaths or commit wickedness. And Valhalla, they daily, there's a, it goes one day at a time, and so everyone is resurrected at the beginning of the day, and they have a giant battle, and the last person alive gets to sit at the right hand of Odin and eat with him. They have the giant feast, and then they all sleep, and they wake up the next morning, and they do it again. <laughs> Zoroastrian afterlife. Zoroastrians are dualists who believe that matter itself is a corruption. At death, a Hermann, the evil god, enters the body and contaminates it whereas the immaterial spirit escapes to remain in the vicinity for three days and nights and suffers anxiety from the recent separation. Oh, where's my body? Oh, oh, oh. The angels Vahuman and Mithra prepare an account of good and evil the person committed. Once Dana leads the soul into the spiritual world, it must cross a bridge of judgment. Good souls enter a paradise and evil ones a realm of punishment. So it all sounds a little similar, doesn't it? I mean, the, the details change a little bit. How about the Buddhist afterlife? At death, the person reincarnates based on the qualities of that one's actions, which is called karma, to higher or lower forms of life. For Buddhists, the soul is not eternal, and believing so is a prime consequence of ignorance. Silly, ignorant person. Souls are not eternal. But you do survive death, repeatedly. When one succeeds in eliminating desire, delusion, and ignorance, he or she can escape the cycle and cease existence. Hindu afterlife. After death, an immortal soul, so you see the difference there, the, the Buddhist is not immortal, but it survives for probably a long time. Um, Hindu is an immortal soul, reincarnates based on one's deeds, which is karma again. Eventually one can escape the cycle by improving his or her karma over many lifetimes and enter a state of perpetual disembodied bliss. What do we call that? Nirvana. It's called Nirvana. Taoist afterlife. A goal for Taoists is to achieve immortality through breathing techniques. Meditation, sexual practices, interesting, physical exercises, yoga, purified metals, ingestion, like eating gold, I guess, and moral living with the goal of eliminating impurities and demons from their bodies to increase their soul's energy. What do all these have in common? 
that we just looked at. From Egyptian to Greek to Norse to Zoroastrian to Buddhist to Hindu to Taoist, every single one of them says that dead people are awake, not asleep. Whether reincarnated in a new body or in some other realm, whether a good realm or a bad realm, they all teach that the real person, call it a soul, call it something else, whatever you want to call it, survives death. That's how radical the Bible is. That's how radical the Bible is. The Bible says you're not awake, you're asleep. You're out of it. You have no share in what happens under the sun. There's not some other realm where you're battling to win a seat at Odin's table, right? Like Josiah said. Yet, although all these things think that the dead are conscious and the Bible teaches against it, what do people in America believe? America is full of Christians, right? And it's not 100% Christian, but there are more Christians in America than any other religion by far. And in America, 80, this is a Barna group survey from 2003, 81% of Americans believe in an afterlife, 9% are uncertain, and 10% say that death is the end. Of those who believe in an afterlife, 79%, that's almost 8 out of 10 people, believe everyone has a soul that will live forever. 8 out of 10 people in this country go against what the Bible teaches and agree with the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Norse, the Taoists, and all these other ones. Isn't that something? 64% believe they will go to heaven. So I guess the rest of that percent either don't know or think they're going to hell. <laughs> Here's another survey. This is from the Pew, this is more recent, from 2014, Pew Research Survey. They say that 89% of American adults believe in God. 72% believe that they will be eternally rewarded in heaven. 58% believe hell is a place where people who led bad lives are punished. This sounds a lot more like the mythology than it does the Bible. 72% think that they're going to be eternally rewarded in heaven. And this leads to the complaint of Isaac Asimov, a famous atheist science fiction writer with amazing sideburns. <laughs> Isaac Asimov says, imagination has never managed to build up a serviceable heaven, however. The Islamic heaven has its hoodies, ever available, ever virginal, so that it becomes an eternal sex house. The Norse heaven has its heroes, feasting at Valhalla and fighting each other between feasts so that it becomes an eternal restaurant and battlefield. And our own heaven is usually pictured as a place where everyone has wings and plunks a harp in order to sing unending hymns of praise to God. What human being with a modicum of intelligence could stand any of such heavens or the others that people have invented for very long? Where is there a heaven with an opportunity for reading, for writing, for exploring, for interesting conversation, for scientific investigation? I'd never heard of one. Have you read John Milton's Paradise Lost? If you read John Milton's Paradise Lost, you will find that his heaven is described as an eternal sing-along of praise to God. It is no wonder that one-third of the angels rebelled when they were cast down in hell. When they were cast down in hell, they engaged in intellectual exercises. Read the poem if you don't believe me. And I believe that hell or not, they were better off. <laughs> better off in hell than heaven because in heaven you're just sitting there singing forever. He goes on, when I read it, I sympathize strongly with Milton Satan and considered him the hero of the epic, <laughs> whether Milton intended that or not. Uh, but what is my belief? Since I am an atheist and do not believe that either God or Satan, heaven or hell exists, I can only suppose that when I die, there will only be an eternity of nothingness to follow. After all, the universe existed for 15 billion years before I was born, and whatever I may be survived it all in nothingness. That's kind of a contradictory statement, because you don't survive if you don't exist. Anyhow, people may well ask if this isn't a bleak and hopeless belief. How can I live with the specter of nothingness hanging over my head? I don't find it a specter. There's nothing frightening about an eternal dreamless sleep. Surely it's better than an eternal torment in hell 
or eternal boredom in heaven. Perspective of an atheist, having read through some of these very same things, and yet, if only someone could have told Asimov about the biblical hope of the kingdom. He's, he's dead now. It's too late. But if only somebody had told him about the biblical hope of the kingdom, it seems to be what his heart, as atheist and callous as it was, was really searching for. Did you hear what he said? He said, I reject the sex house of the Muslims. I reject it. I don't want that. I reject the constant eating and fighting of the Norse. I reject that, right? What, and the harp. I don't want the harp. I don't want the sing-along. What does he want? He's a writer. He's a science fiction writer. So what does he want? He wants reading and writing, scientific investigation, interesting conversation, and exploring. Those are all part of the kingdom age, wouldn't you say? I mean, that's not all the kingdom is, but that's available in the kingdom, right? And so I feel like this message really has traction. You know what I mean? Can really connect with people. And we don't want to collapse into paganism and the mythology. I don't think it's for no reason that all of these world religions think dead people are somehow alive somewhere else. Was it not Satan in the garden that said originally, you will not die? Right? This lie has been spun out generation after generation and culture after culture. And people, I mean, look, you lose a loved one. It's hard. It's hard to face the finality of that. You want to say, well, they're not really dead. You know what we call that? Denial. That's what denial is. Denial is saying the opposite of what's obviously true. And so the hope is resurrection. It's not that they're still alive whispering to you, rearranging the cloudy shape of the cream in your coffee to send you a message. Okay? That's not what is happening there. So as far as Christianity is concerned, we, we can see from the Bible that it originally teaches the sleep of the dead. We can see that. I showed you like a bazillion verses, and I have a bazillion more if you weren't convinced. Believe me. I restrained myself. How did Christianity get from the biblical background of Judaism to believing in heaven and hell? There's a lot to that story, but one of the main parts relates to this ancient Greek philosopher named Plato. No relation to the substance children play with. Plato wrote a famous book that I will probably quote a couple of times. It's called The Phaedo. Right? P-H-A-E-D-O. That's Plato. Plato wrote a lot of books. Uh, but Plato's Phaedo is a book where he talks about death and he attempts to, well, he, he doesn't attempt, he, he builds a case for the immortality of the soul. I'm big into primary sources, like rather than read what a textbook says about what Plato says, let's just read straight from Plato, all right? I mean, we're not going to read it in the Greek because that's just painful, trust me. Read it in the English, but it's still the primary source. And so this is a story that Plato wrote about his master. Plato's master is Socrates, the great philosopher of Athens. And Socrates had been convicted of a capital crime and sentenced to die by taking a poison called hemlock. Phaedo is the story of the last conversations with Socrates before he takes the poison. And then it talks about what it's like when he does actually take the poison, and then it ends when he dies. Okay, so it's sort of like right, his last moments before he he's, has to face death. Phaedo sa says, It never occurred to me to feel sorry for him, as you might have expected me to feel at the deathbed of a very close friend. So Fido is a person who's there at this last meeting with Socrates before he dies. And Fido's like, you know, I wasn't even really, it didn't even occur to me to be sad for Socrates. The man actually seemed quite happy at Cacrides, both in his manner and what he said. He met his death so fearlessly and nobly. Ordinarily, people seemed not to realize that those who really apply themselves in the right way to philosophy are directly and of their own accord preparing themselves for dying and death. If this is true, and they have actually been looking forward to death all their lives, 
it would of course be absurd to be troubled when the thing comes for which they have so long been preparing and looking forward. So their perspective is that philosophy is, is actually kind of like practicing death because what you're doing is you're isolating your mind from your body and you're contemplating deeply while ignoring the external world. It's, it's like, think of it like more like meditation than like writing notes down, right? What you're doing is you're, you're cogitating. Your brain's wheels are spinning. <laughs> as you're trying to imagine what the universe is really like or the nature of beauty or justice. This is Socrates. Do we believe that there is such a thing as death? That's what Socrates asks. Most certainly, said Simeus in reply. Socrates, is it simply the release of the soul from the body? Is death nothing more or less than this, the separate condition of the body by itself when it is released from the soul and the separate condition by itself of the soul when released from the body? Is death anything else than this? That's what Socrates says. Certainly not, Socrates, said Simeus. Certainly not. It's nothing else than that. It's just what you say. Death is no more than the separation of the body from the soul. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Plato, not Jesus. That is not the Bible, that's Greek philosophy. It's not Genesis, that's Phaedo. Right? Surely the soul can reason best when it is free of all distractions, such as hearing or sight or pain or pleasure of any kind. That is, when it leaves the body to its own devices, becomes as isolated as possible, and strives for reality while avoiding as much physical contact and association as it can. That is so. Then... Here again, the philosopher's soul is most disdainful of the body, shunning it and seeking to isolate itself. This is an ancient Greek view of the body. Body not good, body bad, soul good, soul live on, body die, right? So long as we keep to the body and our soul is contaminated with this imperfection, there is no chance of our ever attaining satisfactorily to, the, to our object, which we assert to be truth. In the first place, the body provides us with innumerable distractions in pursuit of its necessary sustenance, and any diseases which attack us hinder our quest for reality. Besides, the body fills us with loves and desires and fears and all sorts of fancies and a great deal of nonsense with the result that we literally never get an opportunity to think at all about anything. Worst of all, if we do obtain any leisure from the body's claims and turn to some line of inquiry, the body intrudes once more into our investigations, interrupting, disturbing, distracting, and preventing us from getting a glimpse of the truth. We are in fact convinced that if we are ever to have pure knowledge of anything, we must get rid of the body and contemplate things in isolation with the soul in isolation. It's likely to judge from our argument that the wisdom which we desire and upon which we profess to have set our hearts will be attainable only when we are dead and not in our lifetime. Incredibly well argued, but totally wrong, right? Now, contrast that for a moment with creation theology. God carefully crafts, he bends down, so to speak, to breathe the breath of life into our nostrils. And we became a living being, right? A living soul. And God says, it was good, it was good, it was good. He fills paradise with fruit and he says, have kids, which involves reproduction, which is a bodily activity, right? I mean, Plato's outraged by all of that. I mean, you can't, maybe this is overstating a little bit, but I don't see how you can be any more opposite than the Greek mindset that says the soul should escape the body so it can actually get some philosophizing done. And the Hebrew mindset, which is like envisioning the future as wine and steak and laughter and rejoicing around a table together, right? I mean, these are very different things. One is isolationist, individualistic, just like trying to figure out stuff, contemplative. And the other is a dinner party, right? Um, right, with friends and family. So anyhow, after this part of the conversation in this book, which, which you can get, uh, there's probably a free translation online uh, out of copyright, or you could buy it in the, it's, he's, Plato's still being sold in all the bookstores around the world to this day. After a long while, of talking, Socrates drank the poison. And he asked the executioner, well, my good fellow, you understand these things. What ought I to do? 
The executioner said, just drink it and then walk around until you feel a weight in your legs and then lie down. Then it will act of its own accord. Socrates received the cup cheerfully without a tremor, without a change of expression. He calmly and with no sign of distaste drained the cup in one gulp. And when he did, everyone in the room started crying. At which point Socrates got angry and sent them out. How dare you cry at my funeral? Calm yourselves. This is what he said. Calm yourselves and be brave. And so he walks around until his legs grow heavy. And then he lay down. And soon the poison reached its way up his body until it got to his heart. And his last words are, Crito, we ought to offer a rooster to Asclepius. See to it and don't forget. And he died. Now consider for a moment Jesus. Once again, we have a rooster and a cup, right? In Mark chapter 14, we read about the last moments of Jesus. Jesus says to Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. Later on, he in prayer says, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Socrates receives the cup and drinks it right away. Not a care in the world. Looking forward, literally, looking forward to dying. Jesus couldn't be more opposite. It says in Mark that when he took Peter and James and John and his disciples, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says that he left the disciples in one place and then he took his inner circle of Peter, James, and John and went a little further. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Jesus says, my soul was very sorrowful, even to death. He says that he's greatly distressed and troubled. That's how Jesus is facing death. Remain here and watch. And then he goes a little further, and what does he do? He falls on the ground, and he prays, and he says to God, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. I don't want the cup. Take the cup. That's what Jesus says. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came, of course, and he found them sleeping. He says, you, can't you watch for one hour? Come on. And then he goes, and he does it again. And he prays the same words again. And he says, let this cup pass from me again. And he comes back in there asleep again. <laughs> and then he does it a third time. Right? And he, and he prays the same words again. And then last of all, he goes through with it. This is Jesus' moment of truth. Either he's going, and, and here, here, here it is, he has to stay in the garden. If he leaves the garden of Gethsemane, he'll get away scot-free. He knows Judas is coming. He knows that Judas has the soldiers with him. He has the arresting party with him and the leaders and that they're going to come and arrest him. And Jesus knows it and he's struggling. He knows death is at the door. He knows that death is an enemy. Just like the Apostle Paul said before, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. In 1 Corinthians 15, you remember that? And so Jesus is now facing that enemy. And what is he like? He's trembling. He's sweating. He's crying out to God. He's on the ground. He's in agony because death is an enemy. It's not a friend to be embraced. It's evil to be resisted. And after Jesus goes through this moment of crisis, he faces death courageously. Right? Because he doesn't just like immediately get killed in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He gets arrested. He gets put on trial. He gets tortured. Right? And through all of that, Jesus faces it courageously. This is his moment of doubt. This is his moment of, is there any other way here? But after that, his, his mind is made up. He remained silent and made no answer when the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? Remember that? After he got arrested? Are you the Christ? Tell us, are you the Christ? The Son of the Blessed. Finally, Jesus replied to him, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus faced it 
You know what I mean? Like this was his, this was his moment where he wrestled with it. But when it came down to it, and he had that high priest eye to eye looking at him, and he said, tell me, are you the Messiah? Tell me, are you the Messiah? I adjure you by the living God. Are you the Messiah? Jesus says, you got it. And not only am I the Messiah, but you're going to see the Son of Man coming in clouds in power, sitting at the right hand of God. At which point, of course, you know, the, the high priest erupts and tears his garments and says, what further need do we have of witnesses? You know, Jesus faces it courageously, but he does struggle first. And so the only question for us is, who are you with? Jesus or Socrates? Are you with Plato or Paul? Is death no more than the separation of the soul from the body? Or is an enemy to conquer in resurrection? Because if you look at it, there are really four options, at least that I'm aware of, right? You have evacuation. That's the idea that you leave, you get out of here, right? 72% of Americans believe in evacuation. Then you have reincarnation, which is billions of people, or at least a billion people, right? Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, Sikhs, or they like to be called Sikhs. Annihilation. Atheists believe in that. Agnostics, non-religious people, right? They just believe that when you die, that's it. But what does the Bible teach? What do some Christians, some Muslims, some Jews, the ones who are reading the Bible, what do they believe? Or reading the Quran as, as well. They believe in restoration. They believe that, yeah, you die, but then you're restored. You're brought back to life in a physical body. So that's the sleep of the dead. It's an important subject. And I say we go with Jesus. What do you think? You want to go with Jesus? I'm, 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 you know, look, I'm with Jesus. Whatever everybody else says, you know, Plato's really smart, no question. But I'm still going to go with Jesus. <laughs> All right, so next time we'll look at the gospel message, the kingdom gospel message. But that's enough for now. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Before wrapping up, I just wanted to read out a comment by Nick Hlifka on podcast 86, The Kingdom in Isaiah. That's part three of this Kingdom of God class. He writes, Hello, Sean. It was a joy to meet you at the Theological Conference. I have greatly been enjoying these podcasts on the kingdom as I'm new to the whole thing, coming from the more typical evangelical view of the ages to come. I was curious regarding Isaiah 65, 20, if this means there will still be death in the kingdom. And if so, for whom would that be? It seems strange that we have heard that death will be swallowed up, yet death is mentioned here. God asserting people will not die too young implies they will still die, but just at a ripe old age. If you or anyone else are able to address this point, it would be quite interesting to discover. Thank you for your wonderful work. Keep it up. Well, Nick, it was also a joy to meet you at the Theological Conference, and your faith journey so far has been the most downloaded out of the seven I put up last week. So congratulations on that uh, distinction. And if you haven't yet listened to Nick Klifka's Faith Journey, check out Podcast 96, where you can listen to that. It's only about 10 minutes long, and it is pretty interesting. So, But back to your question about Isaiah 65, that's where it talks about how people are going to die. Isaiah 65 is itself clearly eschatological. So the question is, how is it possible that in the kingdom age that people are still dying? First of all, I'm not claiming to have every prophecy figured out, right? My intention with this class is to paint with broad strokes. I'm not going to do a timeline and narrowly define exactly when every major event is going to happen. My focus here is to major on the clear things and then leave what is uh, speculation or debate up to others to figure out. So, but if you're asking what is my particular view on Isaiah 65, I'll say it like this. Oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, prophecies about the kingdom are not specific. In other words, they're, they're looking at the whole kingdom age, basically from the time Jesus comes back through eternity as one period of time. We learn later on in the New Testament that this time actually has phases to it. And so the first 
what we might call transition phase, you do have current living human beings on planet Earth. Let's say Jesus came back today. If he did, even if there were a, a ton of apocalyptic events and a lot of people died, there would still be some folks who would survive into the kingdom age. Now, if Jesus is in charge of the world and he has his resurrected saints with him, you can easily imagine a scenario where people would start living much longer, but yet still die. And that would presumably occur until the final judgment. And so uh, I don't know if that if that scenario makes sense to you, but we see in Revelation 20, for example, the mention of the millennium. I know people have different views on the millennium, but one view is to say that that millennium is this transitionary period that lasts for a thousand years where basically Jesus and the saints are getting the world ready for God to come down and to live among us and for his name to be in our foreheads and for us to see him face to face like it was in the Garden of Eden. And so you would have still people living and dying during that period. If you have a different point of view on this subject, please write in. Come on over to restitudio.org and check out Podcast 86 and add your voice to the conversation. Also, I wanted to invite all of you who are able to come to Living Hope's Kingdom Fest. This is our biggest event of the year. Usually we have about 200 folks that come in from all over the place to upstate New York. Uh, We're right outside of Albany and attend this end of the summer weekend. It's September 8th to the 10th, and you can get more information about it at lhim.org. That's Living Hope International Ministries, lhim.org. And uh, I highly encourage you that if you're a Rest Studio listener, that you come to our Kingdom Fest weekend. It's going to be a super time. The theme this year is Yahweh, there is no other, based on Isaiah 45, 5, where it says, I'm Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So that's going to be awesome. We're going to have a bunch of Bible teachings, some praise music. We're going to eat our meals together. We'll have a little time off in the afternoon on Saturday for some recreation or rest, whatever your preference is. And then Sunday we'll have a normal service here at Living Hope. So if you've ever, if you are interested in getting together with other like-minded believers, this would be a great time to do it. It's just one weekend. And we also have some workshop topics that are optional as well for the afternoon, including Christian sexual ethics, experiencing God, financial stewardship, and working with people with addiction. So those are four workshop topics that you could pick from and attend as well. So I hope to see you there. If you want, Once again, if you want more information, go to lhim.org. And on the sidebar, just click on Kingdom Fest, and you can register online, pay with a credit card, or you can register uh, over the phone by giving us a call at 518-785-8888. All right, so I hope to see some of you folks there. I know a bunch of you already go to this event every year, but if you haven't been, I think it'd be really cool to meet up. Stay tuned for Sunday where I have an exclusive interview with Sir Anthony Buzzer where he talks about his life as well as how he sees the future of the movement. So stay tuned for that. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.